Welcome to the American Intelligence Media. My name is Douglas Gabriel. I'm your host, also known as Thomas Paine. And today we are going to look at a continuing discussion. We've already started with Phil Brooks on the Frankfurt School, but we said, hey, hey, we need an expert on Tavistock to come in to tell the British side. So we called up Michael McKibben. Michael, welcome to the show. Great to be here. And you two gentlemen are two of the smartest people I know. So that might give me a chance not to talk so much. But yeah, no guarantees of that. I'm going to open this up a little bit with a review of what we just discussed. Basically, everybody knows I'm going to rail again against uh, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, which was basically doing experimentations in every realm of the human to try to make the human into an animal. And then in Britain, they got kind of jealous. And so the First World War happened. And then in, after the war in uh, Germany, they started in again in 1918 with the Frankfurt School, which was the Marx-Engel infusion from Russia and Britain into Germany. And then they started with this craziness, which yeah, was not, not 1923, yeah, in Frankfurt. But it actually, the, yeah. the Goethe University started actually in 1918, right after the war. Oh, oh the end, yeah, okay. Yeah. So the, the experimentations, but the Institute itself, yes, was a few years later. Yeah. They started these, they were continuing the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. Now, yeah. I didn't mention Tavistock because I can't give you all those details and I'm not an expert on it. And Tavistock morphed into different things in England and you could almost see a war going on between Tavistock, Frankfurt School, Britain, England, Anglos and Aryans. And it's right. insane. They all wanted the same thing, which is fascism so that the elite would be able to control us. And these were mechanisms to get control of people's behavior. Michael, what can you tell us about the Tavistock link to this? Well, the Tavistock Institute really got started at the end of World War One, and was funded largely by the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and um, uh, major uh, oligarchs who were, I think, enamored by how easy it was to use the media of the time to control people. And I think what happened at the end of uh, World War One is they said, well, we, we've got a good thing here. We need to up the game. And that's when they started including psychologists and psychiatrists and uh, refining their techniques. And one of the interesting things, um, I don't have a lot of empirical data for this yet, but at the end of World War One. The, the psychological community in Britain was uh, dealing a lot with what they called shell shock. And they, what it looks like is that they were using these soldiers coming back from the war to experiment on them through the Tavistock Institute to refine a lot of these techniques that they used for emasculating men. And that is... Um, some research that I've read a little bit about, but uh, I think needs to be explored more. And it appears that they just used the shell shock as an excuse to put some of these returning soldiers into these experiments that they then used uh, in the media once they refined the techniques on how they were going to control people and especially looking at how they controlled men. That was brought up in our conversation, and there's an insidious agenda going on here. Uh, at, but with Travis, uh, Tavistock, really what you have pointed out before, this is the war board 
kind of right. merging in not only with psychology, but with writing all the textbooks of the times and then connecting that to the initial propaganda push in 1902 of the imperialism that you have brought to light with the 1909 right. uh, Imperial Press uh, Conference. Now, with Tavistock, their intent was really political manipulation on a level of weaponization, of warfare. Can you say something about that? Yeah, they they were they were looking at how they were reorganizing the British Empire, and they I think at that point realized that propaganda and psychological and and uh, pharma uh, manipulation was much easier way for them to control a larger swath of the world population, and so I think that at the end of World War One, the, the War Propaganda Board, which became the Imperial uh, War Cabinet. Uh, was specifically looking for uh, taking the next steps in in public control of the world as they were pushing the League of Nations. Uh, and through that mechanism, they intended to implement a one world government. And, and so all these forces were coming together at the same time as they um, looked to take everything they learned from World War One and refine it. Because we also see at the end of World War One when they were breaking up the, uh, what they call the Ministry of Information Department, which was their propaganda group. And that was run by the way, by John Buchan, who ended up being high commissioner in Canada about 20 years later. They, they divided up all of the resources that they had been using during the war and uh, they took film and sent it down to Spain. And that's a fact. We do, I haven't really explored that too much, but Spain became a center for worldwide filmmaking through this same psychological mechanism. And somehow it then ended up in Hollywood. But at the time it was very much controlled out of London. Yes. And in, in uh, 1933, because these British incubated, Russian infiltrated ideologists were uh, in fact attempting to have uh, a British Anglo hegemony and it bounced back into Germany in 1933 when the National Socialists, the, the Hitler fascists came along, they wanted to kick those people out because they were gonna turn on Hitler and deconstruct them. The, the Frankfurt School is about deconstruction. It's about taking things apart. It's about destroying it, being critical, using the dialectic process of Hegel and Immanuel Kant to say, basically say, here's the thesis, here's the antithesis, the synthesis must be true. Wrong. What if your thesis was wrong to begin mm -hmm. with? This is the dialectic process that has led us into the duality of materialism that we're facing. So, um, Jeff, what would you say about the British connection? We had talked about the German connection. What do you have to say about the British connection in terms of this type of propaganda? Well, um, the thing I might mention, Doug, is that we know that uh, Trotsky and Lenin went to, and you guys have reported this, uh, and was the gentleman's name Whitehall? Uh, uh, Philip Whitwell Wilson. Wilson. He was, was an MP. Fabian. He was the Fabian. Uh, he was a, known as a radical liberal uh, member of parliament. And was a, a Marxist, and he was the one who coached right. Trotsky and Lenin through this. Which oh, he actually hosted Lenin in, in, in 1905. Yes, 
and they had had several visits and ultimately that prepared them to foment the Bolshevik revolution in October of 1970. And oh, by the way, Whitwell Wilson, Whitwell Wilson was found to be one of the participants in the Imperial press conference in 1909, one of the organizers. So out of the Brit, if you said to someone, the Bolshevik revolution started in London by a bunch of uh, people studying Italian fascism of Giuseppe Mazzini and the other uh, Italian that you mentioned in your presentation. Yeah, Antonio Gramsci. Yeah. There you go. Uh, these are Italian fascists who came out of the Italian banking, Venetian uh, Italian banking system. They came to England and they took over England. And then from England, from London itself, they trained the people to go in what Michael has pointed out are called settlements. And they go and they basically settle in any country you want and they take over. And they're right. fascists. But who knows this in history? We don't know it because Toynbee, who wrote the British history, uh, well, history in relationship to the British being really good people. And the other people uh, like Durant, Will Durant and his wife, these people wrote propaganda. That wasn't history. And it always slanted towards being positive towards the Anglo-American alliance, which is what caused Bolshevism. Well, they called it the English speaking race. That's what they, uh, as they refined their uh, Cecil Rhodes strategy, they settled on not white, but English speaking race as the race that was destined to dominate the world. And that was their philosophy. And they then layered on underneath that socialism as a way to handle the masses. So they don't believe in socialism except for other people. And with the Germans, it was the Aryan uh, influence that wanted to have hegemony. So Aryan hegemony, Anglo hegemony, it's all the same. It's fascism in, in any other name. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Frankfurt schoolers that we touched on earlier, they kind of amalgamated this uh, Freudian psychology to their Marxist ideology uh, and use that as a way to try to put people like, like us and like uh, every American into what they called a psychic iron cage, as we discussed, so that they would be, uh, afraid to speak the truth about what they saw. And they've been pretty effective with that, uh, the political correctness, as we might brand it. And yeah. so, so when we see obvious truth, that truth can no longer be spoken uh, in the clear without threat of or, you know, potential for recrimination. I'm still fascinated by how they uh, decided that they were going to combine psychology, psychiatry with uh, propaganda. Uh, and, and we look at the propaganda from World War I now, and we would in every way call it memes today. Mm -hmm. And what they discovered, and, and they were using telegraphy, they, were un they had unified telegraphy all over the planet by then. And what they had was essentially an early form of the internet, but, uh, and the capability wasn't even that much different than texting. It just wasn't as fast. And one of the things that they, I think, learned is that they could take control of communications, which they were very much planning by the 1909 conference. They actually had Marconi there with his handler, by the way, who was a, was a Scottish engineer. Uh, Marconi was just a cutout. It's real clear looking at his words and, and the comparison between his words and the people that were actually 
implementing wireless and uh, uh, telegraphy. And I think that they saw very clearly that they had to control communication in order to keep this propaganda message focused mm. and uh, global. And they had they found it, it was a very useful way to organize the English-speaking empire. And at the same time, they were uh, developing very clever agendas to wrap America into this. And one of the things they did with our oligarchs, with our um, uh, crony bankers and, and, and the families like Carnegie's, Rockefeller's, um, uh, Warburg's, is they lavished English aristocracy on them. And that is another fascinating aspect of this multi-generational strategy. I think they realized, Cecil Rhodes realized that for all of its weaknesses, the British uh, peerage system was a unique way of organizing their, uh, their agenda across generations. And I think, Douglas, you and I used to talk about this a lot. We, keep, we kept seeing um, uh, multi-generational, like Stroke, Peter Stroke. His grandfather, father, and him were all spies. Well, now we can see the reason. And another one is Masterman, who was related to Cecil Rhodes, who then ended up running uh, indirectly uh, much of the Tavistock work in World War II, uh, and then we also see uh, Baron Richard Allen's grandfather actually was chief of staff for the, uh, the British Army in handling their propaganda in World War II. So we see an absolute continuity between the beginnings of what we now know of as the Internet or communications, electronic communications, and uh, their takeover of propaganda and what we call now fake news. Mm -hmm. And they saw how effective and easy it was to steer an entire th the, the thinking of an entire population with just a few words. I mean, they had one picture, for example, uh, before World War One, where they had a picture of a, a jackbooted uh, uh, ar officer from the Tsar, the uh, Kaiser Wilhelm Army, with three little babies stuck on his bayonet. And they carried the that, pardon? The Hun. Yeah, they carried that uh, that illustration throughout all the newspapers in the West. Mm -hmm. And some say that that was one of the most effective ways they um, had of getting the British public to turn against the Germans because they were not in favor of it at the beginning of the war, but they kept telling these lies and eventually the lies worked. Yeah. Uh, that puts me in mind, Doug and, and Mike, about the uh, the whole issue with uh, J.P. Morgan. Right. Uh, and this, these, so we're talking about sociology and ideology, but there's also hard, uh, you know, kind of components of society that have to be dealt with. And the whole thing is done on a strategic programmatic basis, including the control of the banking. It was about that time around the turn right. of the century, uh, just prior to World War One that the bankers were making full stride to uh, accomplish their fourth iteration of central banking on this continent uh, in the United States of America with the Federal Reserve Act in 1913 and its companion piece, the 16th Amendment, which ushered in an era of income tax 
uh, right. still the bane uh, and the bondage that the American people uh, suffer and are burdened with today. But in that decade leading up to the passage of those two uh, acts, and by the way, folks who've studied this, uh, there was a gentleman uh, who had uh, thoroughly studied the passage of the 16th Amendment. Uh, Red was his, he was referred to uh, as uh, uh, he, he clearly demonstrated that it wasn't even properly ratified. So they gun decked the whole thing and pushed it through. But leading up to that, they had to prepare the ground. They had to plow the field. So they had established a national monetary commission uh, populated by persons who were nominally considered to be uh, leading citizens to consider what they described or at least cast to the American people in the media, the, the newspapers that JP Morgan had bought up. They actually bought 2,000 newspapers at that time to control that media. Can, can I inject something, oh, sure. uh, Phil? The other thing that was occurring at the same time was Carnegie was uh, giving donations out to the entire U.S. library system. Right. And one of the key aims of that Car those Carnegie endowments was to change American teaching about the British and about British history. And they were actually talking about correcting the histories. And that was occurring at the same time. So we have all these forces at work. And so the question is who was driving it? Hmm. And I had always assumed it was the bankers, but I actually don't think so now. I think that the, the, the aristocratic politicians led by Lord Alfred Milner were probably driving the bus and Rothschild was helping them for sure, as was J.P. Morgan and Warburg and, and all the the, uh, uh, the, the other bankers of the time. And that the bankers were not that bright. They just learned that they could use propaganda or hide behind propaganda to drive markets up and down. And so I don't think that they were the spiritual center of this. I think it was Alfred Milner and John Buchan and these people that organized this uh, Imperial Press Conference in 1909. And the bankers were willing players because it made a lot of money for them. Mm -hmm. Well, so it was a full court press on all fronts in society to ultimately reach that uh, global, right. you know, collective economy, the one world order that ultimately uh, George H.W. Bush uh, put into the vernacular uh, in one of his presidential speeches might have been his first uh, State of the Union address, as I recall. But yeah. uh, so then all of that poison of amalgamating, you know, sociology and uh, uh, psychology, psychiatry, psychology and, uh, and Marxist doctrine ended up filtering its way across the country and across the ocean, I should say. When you say Marxist, when you say Marxist, what do you mean? Uh, but it, because I, did, I don't see them embracing Marxisms per se, but more of a a radical socialist agenda uh, of which Marxism was there, Bolshevism, fa even fascism. I, I just see they saw that mentality as a way of controlling the masses, whatever they called it. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, okay, if people like Marx, then they called it Marxism. But if they yeah. called it democratic liberal socialism, then, then that's the term they used. But it was always the same. How do we get control of the masses? Yeah. And how do we keep them in their place? And so the things that began happening in Tavistock 
migrate across to Montreal and end up landing at the Allen Institute there at McGill. And this gentleman who just did some outrageous things, uh, David Ewan Cameron, ends up doing uh, what ultimately devolved into craziness with the CIA and the MK Ultra and MK Delta programs. Right. Where, where they did just outrageous stuff with LSD. Right. And and I always I always thought they were driving the bus on MK Ultra, but I don't think so now. I think it was all Tavistock. I think Tavistock was directing our people. I don't think that our people were driving the bus. Interesting. The people driving it are psychopaths who want to kill people. So we need to interject that their ideology is really eugenics. But it's yes. eugenics not for the elites. It's eugenics for the lower caste, the, the ones who can't pay the a higher toll, the higher taxes. If you have enough money flowing, then they don't really care. But if you don't, then they simply want billions of people dead. When we're talking about these ideologies, we have pointed out that hundreds of millions of people have died because of these false ideologies that have never once ever been put into play in a real applicable way or effective way in any country, anytime, anywhere. So how can they go on? How is the programming so utterly profound? Well, here's something that you just said, Michael, that, that, that struck me very interestingly. The self, the emasculation of the men coming back from the war is right. the same as the Frankfurt desire to destroy the home so that you don't procreate, so that sexuality is such a mess that literally we yeah. see the effectiveness in Europe by the fact that their population has, has not increased and that they could accept another brainwashing mechanism of we need to invite these invasion this these immigrants in because they need to raise our population up this is absolutely a proof of the effectiveness of the behavioral modification that is able to be done by frankfurt and tavistock well and 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 recall that uh 1917 1918 1919 was the spanish influenza which is estimated to have killed between 40 and 80 million people and as we have been talking about earlier, looking at a lot of the pharmaceutical uh, work that uh, Burroughs Welcome was doing with the government, uh, I'm beginning to think that that was just another uh, piece of collateral damage of these people as they implemented their eugenics program. They were very successful and they knew it. And if I may interject, at this moment, your bloodstream is being assaulted and it's in a battle. And we already see the nightmares of what we call the Richard C. Walker Internet of Things um, patent, which basically indicates, and we've seen this already in other countries, there will be police on the street who will be checking to see if you have vaccines. And if you don't, they will give you your vaccine right there on the street or you will go to jail. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. Why? Because in those vaccines, just like in our water, are substances that make you stupid. You all know me very well. You know I'm going to throw a, a, a curveball, and the curveball is why do these elite wish to kill so many people? We have seen that they have literally concentration camps through vaccines, inoculations, through bad medicines, through war, through ideologies. This is a war of the elite literally who want to take the lives, including uh, aborted babies, of all the people below them. It's it's disturbing. How did they get to be such psychopaths? 
Well, I don't know. They, their mamas didn't raise them right, <laughs> for one. Uh, the, you look at these people, and uh, now we can look back and see the symptomatic aspects of this. One of the things that uh, became apparent as we started looking at all these intelligence officers, which were really newspaper men from 1909, who uh, then staffed the MI6 and MI5, up until today, almost every one of their military intelligence people in Britain are SIRs, almost all of them. And the few that aren't uh, were so deep uh, buried in the US that they didn't give them a knighthood, but everyone else was a knight. And you've got to ask yourself, what kind of sickness is, is uh, uh, being transmitted to them or are they um, is it the reverse of that? Uh, there's something about the British aristocracy that preserves this megalomania, this desire to control people, this desire to be above people. When I lived there, one of the things that I quickly realized is this, these people are not very deep. They, they, they use their, their arrogance, their, uh, specialized vocabulary, their specialized accent uh, to intimidate people, not to befriend them, but to keep themselves above the people that they're meeting with. And they've gotten that culture to uh, give them that place and actually uh, support that in, in, in everything they do. And uh, that's just something that's fascinated me about this realization that newspaper men from Britain really started the modern era and have defined the modern era. And we've got to look at those uh, symptoms if we're going to answer your question. Um, Michael, um, Cecil Rhodes, Alfred Milner, they're evil in the Transvaal uh, right. is the basis of what Hitler probably built on. It, it was equal to what Hitler was doing. So I'm talking about these psychopaths. So I'm talking about people who don't mind killing tens of thousands of people in an experiment. Can you tell us right. about some of the vile things that these psychopaths did in the Transvaal, which really set the stage for what I believe are, is the spirit of Tavistock? Right. Well, the, the, the uh, perpetrator of both the first and second Boer Wars uh, was Alfred Milner. It wasn't, I don't think it was Cecil Rhodes. I think it was Alfred Milner. I think he was the, he used Cecil Rhodes, but he survived him and then, and then really pushed World War One. But if we go back to the Boer Wars, they very much wanted to destroy competition from the Dutch, the Germans, and the French uh, for the mining resources of, of uh, Africa, Western Africa. And one of the uh, elements of the philosophy that Cecil Rhodes articulated was we deserve to rule. The white race deserves to rule and we should acquire any resource we need to make that happen. And to megalomaniacs, that was the perfect phrase because they've been carrying that out ever since. And uh, Alfred Milner, I believe, is the power behind even the Cecil Rhodes throne. And he carried on for uh, many, uh, several decades and uh, recruited this group of people, of disciples who 
um, uh, who are willing to uh, go to the mat for this particular vision. And part of this vision in the Transvaal was figuring out good ways to kill people. And I think that's where they they learned that pharmaceuticals were a much easier way to kill the masses than wars, although they didn't mind wars either. And so they brought down to South Africa, to the Transvaal, Burroughs Welcome. And we've actually found Burroughs Welcome documents confirming what I'm telling you right now. And they had this medicine box that they sent down there, which we now know had a lot of voodoo medicine, some, some okay medicine that we know about now, but there's a lot of voodoo medicine, like many um, uh, cures for acne, vaccines for acne, by the way. And uh, we now know today there are no vaccines for acne, never have been. So the question is, what were they giving those children? And, and, uh, and we also know that over 14,000 white children were killed in those concentration camps. So of the 60,000 or more that were killed in the British war concentration camps, about half were black, half were white. And among those whites were people of German, French, and Dutch origin. And it's, it's almost certain that Burroughs Welcome was experimenting on those people and they were refining a lot of their techniques. And then almost immediately, almost immediately after Milner left South Africa, he came to London and he didn't, he wasn't even there a day and the, the King knighted him on the same day he arrived back from his trip. Hmm. And then as we now know, he then 10 years later, was on the the, uh, the British War Cabinet and uh, perpetuated the 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 um, the double cross of the Tsar and uh, wouldn't support them in their fight against the Bolsheviks. Well, now we know why, because Britain had created the Bolsheviks, so he wasn't going to do that. And he he met with the Duma when he was in Moscow. He had met with the Duma. We now have a picture of that meeting at uh, the the. Um, British House of Commons in 1909 during the Imperial Press Conference when they were recruiting all of their spies that made up the original MI5 and MI6. So when you start seeing this, this is a deadly brew. Uh, th this person's character is uh, such that he has to not only control people, but he has to get rid of everyone who doesn't, that he doesn't like. And then they infect all of these aristocrats in England. And then it's an enamoring uh, uh, set of powers they have that clearly our um, robber barons loved. And they loved being flattered and entertained when they came to London. And uh, they, they did some intermarrying with the British aristocracy. And so they created, in essence, an American aristocracy, which was always tied to the British. It wasn't its own, it wasn't its own uh, entity ever. Mm -hmm. And th they have one thing in common. Uh, in the modern day world, George Soros is doing the same thing. He's connected to the British Privy Council through a founding member of the Open uh, Society uh, uh, Foundation, which is uh, Lord Malik Brown. He's also very close with Jeffrey Patty, both members of the Privy Council, both 
who are top propagandists in the world. They not only right. manipulate elections through machines, but they manipulate it through propaganda and they are so effective that they're very proud to brag that sometimes one single phrase can take down someone who's been duly elected. One phrase, not even a sentence, one phrase. So this that's what we're dealing with. And what does George Soros and, and uh, Lord Malik Brown and Jeffrey Patty have in common with the psychopaths uh, Cecil Rhodes and Alfred Milner, they're all Pilgrim Society members. Correct. Every one of them. Yeah, we've now seen a one-to-one -one correlation between what has been occurring since the turn of the last century and the Pilgrim Society. And the fascinating thing and the, and the real breakthrough was the discovery about a month and a half ago of the actual minutes of the meetings of the Imperial Press Conference in 1909. And in that book, all of the founders of the Imperial Press Conference, all the people that organized it, uh, and all the people that spoke primarily in the in the minutes themselves were all Pilgrim Society members. Not even not even close to being a question. So we're the deep state has a name now. We know what it is. It's called the Pilgrim Society. And the fascinating thing is that nobody's heard of it. <laughs> Now, oh, here's a question for either one of you gentlemen. I wonder if our good friend Marx or Engels or Trotsky or Lenin or any of the people who they incubated into these ideologies that have taken the life of millions were also members of the Pilgrim Society. I, I got to believe they were because they were housed in London. We now have the actual newspaper articles some, in some cases, but the actual evidence to prove that between uh, 1902 and 1911, Lenin was there at least four times. And uh, on some of those trips, Stalin was with him as was Trotsky. And they were, they were organizing uh, what became the Bolshevik party. And in one of those uh, places where Lenin stayed was actually the physical address of the Bolshevik, the British Bolshevik party by 1920. So uh, the, the pilgrims were clearly uh, building these people into a political force to take over somewhere. And they just found that uh, Russia was the most likely place because they feared a, a resurgent or ascendant Russia with its resources. It's got 11 time zones in that country. I mean, you can imagine the resource base. That's what British Britain was jealous of, was having resources. And they didn't want the Germans to have Africa. They didn't want the Germans to have Russia. And they either wanted to control it or kill it. And clearly they killed Russia. Mm -hmm. yeah. Phil, Phil, is there a way around the Tavistock programming going on in America now? Well, I think we're doing it right now. We're telling the, the hard truth that folks just don't get, that they're never going to get in their uh, collegiate, in their secondary education. But the good news is this bandwidth, even despite the fact that it's fully compromised, as we know, with the globalist kind of control and the Googles and the YouTubes and the Facebooks and the whole thing, uh, despite the fact that that's happening, we can still get the message out. People can still tune in. They can still subscribe to things. And slowly but surely, the information has to bubble up and rise up. And and I believe that the young people are, they're ready uh, because history's turned. And this whole banker controlled with Marxist minions and 
you know, crazy psychology and psychiatry like we see with Tavistock and with the uh, Allen Institute in Montreal and all the really uh, abominable uh, dirty tricks that went on. Uh, all of that stuff is coming to light. And when people see how evil that is, they're responding to it. They don't want to have that in their lives. Young, Correct. Young, young people have a smartphone with all the freedom of the world at their fingertips today. Uh, they believe in liberty. Uh, all we need to do is connect them to the, the principles that make it possible to have that liberty continue uh, in time. And I think we're, as I say, we're a turning in history here now and, and we're shifting back to liberty. Uh, the people are in motion. We see that politically with the 2016 election. I believe President Trump will be reelected in 2020 as well. And we have strong indications of that from some of the, you know, from some of the uh, rallies, even at this moment, as the campaign season starts to, you know, spool up. What was it? 30,000 people in Dallas, plus another 30,000 waiting outside for uh, President Trump's recent rally there. Mm -hmm. That is a huge demonstration of the people in motion. So I'm optimistic about all that, but it's important for us to tell the facts about this. And as we talk about all that stuff uh, making its way across the country, you talked about MI6 being controlled and MI5, and ultimately our CIA gets involved with it. And we see what George H.W. Bush did on an international control basis as he tried to enforce his marketplace with the cocaine enterprise in the 1980s. And uh, the people that were involved in England and other countries around the world uh, as part of that group, there's all kinds of, you know, undercurrents that flow here. But one of the things that occurs to me is, and I just happened to bump into this in personal experience with a psychologist uh, uh, colleague of mine. Uh, he told me about this, the whole programmatic um, deployment of these uh, techniques on a sociology basis that they were interested in doing and on a psychiatry basis. Uh, at one point, there was over 60 uh, universities in our country involved in the MK Ultra. The CIA put tens of millions of dollars into putting that stuff out there. This particular gentleman was given a grant to give LSD to chickens to see what they would like to see what the chickens would do on LSD. I think that's called scrambled eggs. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to the CIA. I mean, really. Yeah. I mean, crazy, crazy stuff. But then when you see what the really dark and, and really despicable stuff was with this Donald Ewan Cameron, this uh, psychologist, Scottish-born uh, psychiatrist who comes to the Allen Institute in Montreal and ends up putting people in drug-induced LSD uh, stupors for three months in, in beds at a time. U.S. servicemen involved with it, not really knowing what they were getting into other folks. We've seen the testimony of those people coming out of that program, totally uh, destroying their 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 personal understanding of themselves, et cetera, trying to break them down to get to a tabula rasa to build them up according to their model. This is some of the really uh, despicable stuff that was underway. So we, we can't do, uh, we can't be, uh, in, we can't be in stasis here. We got to get all this information out and help the people to understand that this stuff really did go on. It's a privilege for me to be able to chat with you guys about this stuff with your deep research on these matters, because we have to put the whole picture together. And as you say, Mike, we don't have all the answers just yet, but the more you dig, the more you kind of put it together, 
that's the beautiful part about this digital bandwidth that Mike, you were basically responsible for with Leader Technologies to be able to create. We're well, going to get the, the it's seep back. It's going to seep into the bandwidth, and people are going to get it. You mentioned sociology, and one of the we haven't really focused on this, but we're we, we've discovered that the uh, the the seeds of the modern sociology department in our universities really started developing in about 1850, 1860 with a guy named John Ruskin. And, and uh, Milner, by the way, was an early disciple of Ruskin and actually participated in some of his early settlements. And Ruskin was promoting these settlements. So what they had decided they wanted to do was uh, remake modern society in the image of their thoughts. And one of the things they decided they had to do was control the definitions of words. And they developed essentially the modern sociology department that is in our universities today. And the specific task was to redefine the dictionary away from historical views of morality and to be remade in these socialist uh, enclaves that uh, the, the settlement movements, which includes, by the way, kibbutzim in, in Israel uh, that were developed by the uh, British Zionists. So we, we've, we see a very determined group of people to achieve their ends. Uh, and those ends are very different than what the average person on Main Street even thinks about. And I think that's this has been one of the difficulties in getting this message to break through, is these facts are so uh, fantastical yeah. that that nobody wants to believe it. And right. I think that hopefully we're getting past that. They're saying, okay, maybe I need to pay attention. Yeah, yeah, it, it's all going to come out. It always does. And we know who wins in the end. And it's just a question of accelerating that process as we as we press forward. I'm looking at 2020 as a great uh, a great moment of turning for us. If we get four more years of President Trump, uh, perhaps we can begin to shut the door on a lot of these things and get back to the framers' intention for this republic. And to the extent that we can get our uh, our young people engaged in understanding what's really going on, and honestly, I think. Although the Marxists and the sociologists and the psychiatrists and the uh, who you know are prescribing drugs to modify people's behavior, which is all craziness, right. uh, uh, when we when we get them back to the fundamentals of this country, I think we've got a bright future ahead of us. Uh, but it is going to be a, a slog here, and I think it's time for us to accelerate in this year and then in this next four years uh, with all you know with the Lord's. Uh, uh, with the Lord's uh, providence, we can we can have Phil, a good chance to establish a, a century I, of American I, prosperity. I have a question for you, Phil. I, I've heard some of your earlier interviews with Douglas, and uh, let me ask you this: Do you think we have ever actually had a free press in this country? I believe we had a free press uh, during the American War for Independence, and I say that because when George Washington penned his, uh, that is to say, during the, re uh, the revolution and after uh, the American Revolution, 
I believe there was a moment when we did have a free pass, press because when George Washington penned his farewell address to the people of the United States, within two days it was up in Claypool's American Daily Advertiser in Philadelphia, and then very shortly thereafter reprinted in the Hartford Current and other uh, uh, other media of the day up and down the colonies. So I think there was a free press there. Um, so how quickly did it get quashed? Well, good question. The, the British came in in the War of 1812. They weren't satisfied with the result of the of the War for Independence. Um, the the bankers got a second, third charter uh, on the bank. I think in 1833, when President Andrew Jackson shut down uh, the bank in his war with Nicholas Biddle, who was at that time the, the Rothschild agent control agent of the second iteration of the Bank of the United States, uh, uh, he, he still had the press working for him as he called the bankers a den of vipers and was successful in taking the federal money out of uh, that bank and putting it into state banks. There was still uh, some free press in the people's corner there on a populist basis under uh, Andrew Jackson's uh, leadership. It's interesting to note that President Trump has a portrait of Andrew Jackson there as we look at the Oval Office desk on the right-hand side, typically as you face that and take a look. Uh, there was a time when he had the press available to him. Well, we do know from that 1909 conference that most of the American correspondents in London were also uh, members of this, uh, or delegates of this convention. And it's looking like that that 1900, 1909 timeframe was when the press was completely overrun with, with this agenda. Right. And, it, and we are still seeing that to this day. There's a gentleman named Murray Rothbard who writes about uh, the overrun, if you will, of the U.S., uh, of the people of the United States by the, the central banking paradigm again. Uh, and he talks about that fact that that's when, as I, as I mentioned, J.P. Morgan and others went out and bought up 2,000 new newspapers around right. the country in that decade right. to control this false narrative that there was some kind of a banking crisis. There was no right. banking crisis. In fact, it's better to be banking with your local bankers right. uh, on a localized economy basis, but they had to get all that stuff upstreamed into their control. And so the, you know that was their consummation of that central banking model, which is the fourth iteration. Honestly, that's one of the key things, it seems to me, gentlemen, despite the fact that we have some really psychopathic uh, people uh, with the crown and with the, the bankers in England, the Queen's Privy Council, as, you, as you've so effectively, uh, control freaks, basically, as you so effectively uh, reported on. But if we can get shed of the Federal Reserve central bank model in this country, and I think President Trump is on to that. I think he fully understands that. In fact, We've advised him of that with correspondence. We've talked with his campaign in 2016, et cetera. Uh, then we can make some traction. And uh, because if the bankers, we can get the bankers out of our lives and unburden the people and try to get uh, a shift in our taxation model so that we can actually get the drag break of taxation off the flywheel of the economy and begin to really spool up prosperity. In other words, the people having their resources, their money, et cetera, working for themselves to create further wealth, uh, that's where the future is for us. And so telling this whole story about the sordid methods of control that these crazy people have done over the last century and more, uh, 
uh, is the way I think to get people to realize that we don't have to have the system that we're in. We don't have to have income tax. We don't have to have central banks making making money out of thin air uh, on the backs of the people, deflating right. the value of the money that's in their pocket as the prices inflate. We don't need any of that stuff. And no, Griffin no. did it. Sorry. No. no, we don't. And and those are false ideologies, as you just pointed out. They're fake. They only serve the people at the top. They're used for behavioral manipulation. So when we talk about the new false ideologies, it's going to be the Rothschild central bank style of odious debt, which is debt enslavement. Okay. That's, That's an ideology right. that is not in any way real. That is an applied uh, uh, methodology of control that uses propaganda. And remember the bankers always own uh, ultimately uh, the propaganda news media agencies or else they can't get away with their crimes. Then if you take the United Nations, that is a British kind of five eyes league of nation attempt for globalism. Globalism is a false ideology. Mm -hmm. It cannot work at this point because we are not all Christians. Yeah. We are not good enough to treat our neighbors properly. And nations certainly don't do that, especially when they're controlled by despots or dictators. And then you have the Saul Alinsky ide false ideology, which Obama brought directly into politics and is now basically cultural Marxism under the guise of social Democrats. Complete nonsense, again, cannot be applied in the real world, and only a psychopath could teach it, and only a psychopath could believe it. Then you have the false ideology of George Soros. George Soros, the open borders false ideology, which supports non-government organizations, which in fact undo governments. That is their job. That is the Frankfurt School. That is the critical anti-social actions of the Frankfurt School. George Soros might as well be the lord of the Frankfurt School. Cecil Rhodes and Alfred Milner particularly uh, should be uh, uh, really considered the lords of imperialism. These are false ideologies. And when we break them down and you really bring it to light, as you've pointed out, the only way anyone could possibly ever believe this is if they were a materialist, period. You cannot believe Marxism can work if you look at history. You cannot believe that communism will work anywhere in history, not if you look at it objectively. So what is it that causes someone to believe in a psychopathic false ideology? Very simple. Materialism. I got a stake in it. That's it. Paid. That's it. It's all materialism. If you had a spiritual worldview, you would be able to see these things. And you would also understand that the people who are doing them are simply following the very well-tread path to hell, the seven deadly sins, which are all controlling people in this realm of materialism. The moment that you wake up, and you deny materialism and you move towards the reality that you don't wish to be an animal human, you wish to be an angel human, the long and the short of saying it, you're not going to be held by false ideologies. Right. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, uh, Doug, your point is apt. And it's interesting how the Bible precedes us once again on these things. It talks about uh, God destroying the Tower of Babel. Uh, when uh, the uh, uh, the uh, Nimrod and the uh, and the denizens of of Babel decided that they were going to have one one world culture, if you will, one language, 
And God said, no, that's not how it works. That was the globalism of the day. And he said, we're going to destroy that. And we're going to, we're going to have tongues where you're going to go into the nations out in the world. And that's what happened. And uh, we, need, we need diversity, diversity. We have to have diversity. Right. Because whenever we unify, it goes in the toilet. Yeah. Centralizing uh, things simply makes it easier for evil to take over. Right. right. And there's so, no check on human nature. Right. And so this brilliant stroke that happened in combination with the hand of Providence, I think, there in Philadelphia in, in, in the summer of 1787, when Elizabeth Powell uh, saw Dr. Franklin as he came out of the deliberations of the Constitutional Convention and said, well, what doctor have you given us? What, what will we get? He says, a republic, if you can keep it. And that republic is was the way they managed with with prayer and with uh, humility to find a way to separate power to to uh, to disperse the power right. through the federal branches of the government through the state branches of of their governments etc. So that the people could be sovereign in the entirety of this. It was it's and it was all. I think it was all the hand of God that was moving there, the hand of providence that allowed all that to happen. So what happened? Just in 200 years, the United States of America became the greatest, most prosperous, freest society that has ever existed on the face of this earth. And we still have that available. That remnant is still there. And that's what well, I, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, was working in the former Soviet Union and taking gospel music groups and working behind the Iron Curtain in Poland and Yugoslavia and Romania and uh, in Russia now, and saw the end of their system, their communist system. And it was, it was everything that the Democrats are trying to implement now. Not only the Democrats, I would say anybody that's establishment politics in this country is attempting to repeat what the Soviets failed at. And it looks to me that we're, we're experiencing um, Cecil Rhodes 3.0 right now. They're trying again. They learned some things from the communists. They learned some things from the, the fascists in um, Mussolini and, and uh, Adolf Hitler. And then they've started the EU to try to repeat it again, and this time hopefully get it right the third time around. But what I saw in that country was a definite two-tiered system. I mean, they, it got so bad with their economy, they had to develop special stores, which their privileged elite could go into and spend dollars in that the average citizen was not allowed to go in. And you go to their supermarkets, and the, and the, the, uh, the, the shelves were empty. Uh, and of course, they could they could put on a good show for somebody they wanted to impress and make it look halfway normal. But the fact is, the man on the street, uh, I, I can't tell you how many people told me when I asked them. I said, "Well, what's your objective here in in your Christian work?" And and their answer, almost to a man to a woman, was, "I just want to live an honest life." And they weren't allowed to live an honest life because everything was corrupt, down to their elementary school teachers, everyone was corrupted. And it got so bad, the system collapsed on its own. Now, I'm not saying it's uh, perfect there now, but the, 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 what I saw coming out of that was an I got an appreciation for what we had inherited in, in the United States. 
in our history and the brilliance of our founders who weren't perfect men and women, but they set up a standard that even would inspire them to better things. And I think that's the key. Well, you know, Michael, you've said this before, and it always makes me think of, well, they're saying it right now. They're saying that it's a Soviet process going on with the Adam Schiff impeachment and with right. Pelosi and the whole house. Uh, it really is. Completely is. Soviet. So it's the United Soviet Socialist America. Is that where we're going to go? No, we're not going to that because of gentlemen like you who aren't uh, quite the uh, rude awakening that I am when people have to listen to me, but you present it so nicely. I appreciate I was going to talk to you about that, Doug. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not going to help. So, uh, as you know, once a curmudgeon, always a curmudgeon. So, yeah. anyway, my point is is that you two are beautiful red pills for people to wake up that this isn't just the past. It is the present, and you better get straight with what you're going to do about the future because just take a look at the social credit system in China. Take a look at what Michael was just saying about the Soviet Socialist Republic of Russia and also even what Russia is doing now or any other communist country, any fascist country, any socialist country, any country bent on hegemony based on any type of ideology or theocracy cannot go on in a free world. So right. we thank you for bringing to us today a view of seeing that the past has deep roots in fake ideologies, and we must stand up against them with something that conquers materialism and can connect us to a positive future. So thank Absolutely. you, gentlemen, for being with us today. Oh, you're welcome. Great pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen. Enjoyed it very much.